Welcome to Middle East Forum in the Morning. I'm Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM. Today, September 19th, 2018, or tends to be an amazing program. We have James Lindsay, former counsel for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, the Palestine Refugee Agency, on the program today. And a little bit later on, we have E.J. Kimball, director of the Middle East Forum's Israel Victory Project. But first... In the last 72 hours, we have seen dramatic developments over the skies of Syria, with French, Russian, Turkish, Syrian, and Israeli aircraft and warships all engaging in a tit-for-tat battle that has left 15 Russian airmen dead after a Syrian surface-to-air missile struck them out of the skies on the evening of February, excuse me, of September 17th. The story unfolded like this. After Israeli intelligence found out that there was an impending weapons transfer from Iran by way of a Syrian facility on the Syrian Mediterranean coast, Israeli aircraft launched with four F-16 fighter jets going to intercept this inbound weapons transfer to Hezbollah, the Lebanese terror organization and proxy of Shia Iran. Upon launching their missiles, Syrian air defense systems launched a scattered rogue barrage of surface-to-air missiles and flak fire at the incoming Israeli jets. Afterwards, we found that there was a Russian uh, bomber that was flying off the coast of Syria on a mission out of one of the Syrian bases that's occupied by the Russian Air Force, a Tupolev-21 jet was shot out of the sky by Russian surface-to-air missiles that were targeting the inbound Israeli flights. Now, several things come to mind of what exactly went wrong. First and foremost, there is a deconfliction mechanism, a hotline, if you will, that exists between the Russian and Israeli air forces. Every time that the Israelis are planning a strike on a target within Syria, they notify and pre-warn their Russian counterparts to ensure that Russian planes are out of the area of active operations of Israeli fighter jets flying over the skies of Syria, Lebanon, or Israel, trying to strike at targets within that rogue regime. Now, the second thing that you have to ask yourselves is we now know that a call was made, but how many minutes went between the alert and the actual Israeli strike itself. There may have been a little uh, bit of tension or not as much warning time coming out by the Israelis, giving the Russian counterparts their uh, sense of what was happening. But now, two days after the strike, and as the facts and the investigations unfold, we understand that the Syrian anti-aircraft fire that was coming off the Syrian coast into the skies over the Mediterranean Sea was not aimed at the Israeli fighters. In fact, multiple missiles were launched on a Russian system by the Syrian operators in a random pattern. Now, if you think about the way in which air-to-air combat and an aerial theater operates— If you have a Russian-made system targeting Israeli fighter jets, there is a transponder on other jets that may be operating on behalf of the Syrian Arab Air Force or on behalf of the Russian Air Force. Now, I don't understand how there is no coordination and no tracking by Syrian air defense systems of their Russian allies in the skies over their own country, and more so... I don't understand what a Russian jet was doing flying cover in an area close to an Iranian weapons transfer to Lebanon. If anything, the fault for this event falls squarely on the shoulders of the Syrian regime. 
the Israelis were doing what they had to defend themselves, and by the Syrians tacitly allowing the transfer of weaponry from one rogue nation to its proxy terror organization in that theater of the Middle East. We find ourselves in a situation where Israeli self-defense led to the needless loss of Russian lives, not because of Israel, but because of the Syrian allowance for these weapon transfers to continue unabated by the Iranians. Now, this isn't the first strike carried out by the Israelis, but it is one that we find ourselves looking at that they tacitly admitted in an admission that came on the morning of September 18th, just yesterday. The Israelis expressed great reservation over the Russian loss of life, but again, placed blame squarely on their Syrian opponents. Now, this is a very heated time in this area, and we talked about the French and the Turks and some of the other actors that are in that area. After we have a talk that was concluded on Monday in Sochi, an area of southwestern Russia, between President Vladimir Putin of Russia and President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey. Now, Russian and Turkish troops are set to enforce a new demilitarized zone in Idlib, the last canton of Syrian rebel control in that country, which will require certain rebels on a jointly agreed list that the Turks and the Russians come up with to vacate their presence from a demilitarized zone that's now being set up between the Syrian regime forces and Syrian opposition forces. Putin told a news conference with Erdogan that the agreement was that all heavy weapons would be withdrawn from this new buffer zone and that he called radically minded rebels, including the al-Nusra Front and Hezbollah Tahrir, would have to pull out of the zone. The Russian Interfax news agency quoted Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shugu as saying there would be no new offensive for now. The demilitarized zone, which comes into force on October 15th, will be between 15 and 25 kilometers wide and patrolled by mobile units of Turkish paramilitaries and Russian military police. Now, moreover, after this confliction in the sky was supposed to be ameliorated by a deconfliction mechanism and this agreement between the Turks and the Russians on the ground, there's one notedly absent party, and that is the Iranians. If anything, the conference that took place a week or two ago in the Soshan talks, rather in the Astana peace process, which is between the Turks, the Russians, and the Iranians, the main hegemons in non-Kurdish Syria, the Iranians were not present at this conference. President Hassan Rouhani of Iran did not attend this conference over the Idlib province. Does this mean that Iran's influence is waning in the country? Certainly not. But if anything, the Turks and the Russians are now sick of their castigating behavior, which only 48 hours ago led to the downing of a Russian plane. Moreover, in Syria, they're holding their first municipal election since 2011 amid tensions with the country's self-administered Kurdish region, which is refusing to allow polls to take place. Polls open on Sunday in government-controlled areas with more than 40,000 candidates standing for 18,478 council seats. You can guarantee that all of those different candidates are, in one way or another, reporting directly to Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Most of the other opposition that would have ran in these sham elections are either dead, in exile, or wallowing away in the squalor of a Syrian prison. The Kurdish self-administration is refusing to include North Syria in the elections. Its officials say they want a federal Syria that respects their autonomy from Damascus. Moreover, 
Israel on Monday released photographs taken by its new Ofek-11 spy satellite of sites located deep within inside Syria, including Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad's palace, and an apparent threat to the regime. Later on Monday, the strikes that we just spoke about at the opening of the program took place. Now, in the wake of this hostility and this uh, renewed conflict in northwest Syria, we see that the Turks and the Israelis are actually now backchanneling negotiations, four months after Turkey expelled Israeli ambassador to Turkey, Eitan Naeh, following the death of 61 Palestinian protesters during the March of Return riots. The two countries are conducting secret talks in order to normalize relations. According to Israeli and Turkish officials, if there will not be another last-minute crisis, the two countries are expected to return their respective ambassadors after the Jewish high holidays. After these messages, we'll be joined by James Lindsay, former counsel of the United Nations Relief and Works Administration. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East in the Morning. I'm your host, Greg Roman, here on WWDB 860 AM. Today, Wednesday, September 19th, we're joined by our first guest, James Lindsay, a visiting fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, with a focus on Palestinian refugee issues and UN humanitarian assistance. During 2000 to 2007, Mr. Lindsay served as the legal advisor and general counsel for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Prior to his UNRWA service, Lindsay spent 20 years as an attorney in the criminal division of the U.S. Department of Justice. Mr. Lindsay, good morning. Good morning to you, Greg. And we have a real exciting time right now, at least as it pertains to the future of this some people say vaunted UN agency, other people say venerable, insofar as the Trump administration since January of this year has budget by budget gradually scaled back and has now stopped all funding to UNRWA, as it's otherwise known, it's a colloquialism. Now, during your time at UNRWA, can you give us a little bit of background with your experience as a legal advisor and counsel within the organization and, and, and tell our listeners exactly what this agency's purported mission is to do? Well, 
I came to UNRWA uh, after a number of years at the Department of Justice. But part of my time in the Department of Justice, I had been on loan to an organization called the Multinational Force and Observers, which monitors the peace treaty between Egypt and Israel and is funded by Egypt, Israel, and the United States. I was the legal advisor in Sinai to that organization, so I was really quite close to Gaza. We were only a few miles away from Gaza. And that was from about 1985 to 1994. When I returned to the area in 2000, it was as a lawyer for UNRWA, that is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees in the Near East. Um, my time there was uh, a bit strange because I was a Westerner. Uh, there were other Westerners, of course, in UNRWA. UNRWA has approximately 30,000 employees, of which roughly, it varies, but roughly between 150 and 200 are internationals, that is, they're non-Palestinians. So, first place, I was one of the internationals, so one of the relatively few people in the organization. But also, I was an American, and the American uh, interaction with Palestinians has always been somewhat fraught. So it was, uh, it was an interesting experience. I, I came to the organization with a generally pro-Israel view, and uh, that also may be somewhat uh, unusual in the organization. I, I did not find it a difficult uh, place to be, other than wanting to be careful not to be, not to sound overly pro-Israel amongst my colleagues. God forbid you could express your own opinions. Well, it was a situation in which one could do that, but that would make one unpopular. Right. Um, it's like being pro-Trump uh, pro in New York City or something. Right. Only on uh, Trump Tower could you express those kind of <laughs> <Right>. opinions. <laughs> so when, when you were serving at UNRWA, there were several events that took place that affected U.S. diplomacy there. I'm, I'm reminded of the bomb attack on a State Department convoy that took place in Gaza. Was there any uh, fear by being a U.S. national working for the U.N. agency responsible for Palestine refugees during the uh, beginning of the Second Intifada, during that attack on that convoy? Did you ever feel that there was more precarious times uh, when you were serving there? I mean, if, if you think about it, you started at the end of the Camp David II process, and you left the organization when Hamas effectively took over Gaza. So what, what transpired during those seven years that you think was maybe not just the biggest hurdle to overcome professionally, but in terms of what the organization's mandate was? And, and did you see a change in that during that escalation in violence and transfer of control? Well, of course, there was some... Uh, there was some refocus of the organization because they were concerned with the uh, back and forth between the Palestinians in Gaza particularly and the Israelis with regards to the Intifada. And uh, there were numerous occasions when the Israelis would attack or would bomb uh, parts of uh, Gaza. And that, of course, made uh, the Israelis and everybody knew where a lot of the weapons were coming from, from America, <laughs> made the Americans very unpopular as well. Uh, it, it was always a little precarious being an American. I don't want to over-dramatize that. I certainly wasn't uh, uh, scurrying from place to place to trying to hide out. 
but there was always the possibility uh, that some particularly more radical, renegade group, more radical than the Palestinian Authority, would kidnap one. And that it did happen to people. It happened to Westerners. And in fact, in 2005, it happened with increasing frequency amongst Westerners, and therefore many of the internationals in Gaza left. And my office, which was in Gaza, at the headquarters of the UNRWA, actually moved to East Jerusalem in 2005. Uh, there was only so much one could do, uh, because we weren't in a guarded compound. I lived in an apartment in Gaza City. In fact, I, I remember when I first went to Gaza in the summer of 2000, before the Intifada started, um, I was already a little nervous, so I chose a location right next to the main police station in Gaza. Well, as it turned out, once the Intifada started and got going, the uh, Israelis bombed that police station on a regular basis. So, wow. so it was a few hundred meters from where the thousand-pound bombs were dropping. So you didn't have to wait until July 4th to see the fireworks. You really didn't. And it would, uh, would certainly shake the building I was in and break windows sometimes. Um, but I, I had a reasonable amount of faith that the Israelis would not be hitting uh, areas that had civilians. They were just bombing the same police station again and again, and that's what happened. Um, there, was no, there was no real difficulty. There was always difficulty moving because there would be operations ongoing. So if I were, like, leaving Gaza uh, to go visit my wife, who was in Israel, uh, it would require planning and uh, sometimes ignoring ignoring uh, directions in order to get out. <laughs> right. I mean, you would have uh, – there, there's two points for people who, who haven't studied a map of Gaza before. One, which is the Palestinian-controlled crossing, Hamsa Hamsa, which is uh, uh, about half a kilometer from the Israeli crossing point, the Erez crossing, which is uh, now at least used for personnel trying to go in and out of the Strip. But uh, I could imagine that treacherous, arduous journey from center Gaza City all the way up through the uh, the north of the Strip and on, on your way up the coastal highway to uh, to make it through right. Erez. And that's the way we walked through Erez. That's how, how I always left. Uh, that was the main crossing point for people in those days as well. Okay, so let's let's get a little bit more technical for a second. In your role as the legal counsel, there was probably a lot of uh, applications or, or questions regarding UNRWA's mission as it pertained under international law, whether it be the Geneva Conventions, the UN General Assembly Resolution that created the organization, or ongoing Security Council resolutions that were probably passed or vetoed or considered in the wake of the Second Intifada. And, and now especially, a big conversation that's going on in Washington, and I believe you actually contributed with a legal analysis on this issue for Middle East Quarterly a few years ago, the Middle East Forum's uh, quarterly journal that comes out regarding a legal definition of a refugee versus of, of, of UNRWA's understanding of that definition versus that of what the U.S. government considers to be a refugee. Can can you differentiate between the two if there is any difference? There are substantial differences, and the U.S. government definition tracks that of the uh, convention relating to the status of refugees, uh, which was uh, formulated and published in 1951 and has been agreed to by most of the countries of the, of the world at this point. Now, that definition refers to 
a person, and I'm quoting now actually, a person who has a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion, and is outside his country of nationality and or his, uh, his nation of former habitual residence. Those people are essentially people who are stateless. They have been rejected or are afraid to return to their country. Uh, the essence of refugeehood is being stateless. It is not having a government which can represent you and which can protect you in the world. So if we were to take the difference between the way that UNRWA considers a refugee versus the U.S. adoption of the U.N. Convention on Refugees, we might find ourselves with the following analysis. If you live in Gaza or the West Bank, you're home. You have an administration. Now, whether that's Hamas or the Palestinian Authority, whether it's a non-state actor or semi-state actor or autonomous government, in one way or another, you have civil services being provided to you if you're in, at least in, a, in the West Bank, in area A and B, which is uh, having a semblance of Palestinian Authority civil control, or in Gaza, which has been completely detached from Israel, you're probably not considered stateless. You may have a, 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 a flux of your statehood, but that's more of an issue for an international uh, body to decide or for you to declare independence. And then beyond that, if you live in Jordan or uh, Syria or Lebanon, I guess, are two different situations because those governments don't consider the Palestinians there to be citizens of those countries. But if you're in Jordan, there's something like one to two million Palestinians that at one time fell under the UNRWA definition but have now been granted Jordanian citizenship. So you have another state that's considered for you. But UNRWA still considers them to be refugees. And then even if you go one step further, which is the uh, generational issue, right, based on matrilineal or patrilineal descent, if you are a third or fourth or fifth generation Palestinian, you may still not be considered a refugee because you've already found a place to be able to settle. So the, the, the UNRWA definition allows them to categorize some 5.3 to 5.0 million Palestinians as refugees with an ever-increasing number. What would you give as your analysis of the actual number? Well, the numbers that UNRWA has uh, reflect about one point, in, in Gaza, about 1.3 million uh, refugees. These are Palestine refugees under the UNRWA definition. The West Bank has another uh, 800,000 or so. So in the well, West Bank and Gaza together, you have about 2.1 million people who are considered refugees by UNRWA. As you've just mentioned, they are people who have the, almost exactly the same, in fact, I believe it is exactly the same status as the people in those areas who are not considered refugees. In other words, there is no real difference between the two. They have the same civil rights. They have this big vote. Uh, in elections, when elections are held, they're entitled to the same uh, protection from the courts, everything. So while they are not technically citizens of a state, because there is no Palestinian state at this time, they do tend to match the uh, one of the exceptions to the rule for uh, refugees under the convention, which is that people who have a new nationality which would cover the people you mentioned in Jordan who are actually citizens, but also those who have, have the rights and obligations 
attached to nationality. So I think you could argue, and certainly many people have, that that would be the same, that the people in Gaza and in the West Bank do have the same rights and obligations that are attached to, quote, nationality, unquote. You would maybe mention whether or not these uh, areas are, in fact, uh, states. And uh, some, a very large number of United, United Nations members have, in fact, determined that they are states and have recognized the states of Palestine. Yet they're uh, still subsidizing but, a refugee agency that's catering to individuals that if we go by their recognition of the state, which I'm not saying should be the U.S. or Israeli recognition, they're basically double paying. In one way, it's direct assistance to a government of the Palestinians, in, in uh, quotation marks, that they give through direct financial aid, and then they're still underwriting the cost of refugees that live in that state that they recognize, too. So it's sort of uh, double-dipping. It's true, but it's not really double-dipping because there are different groups of people. In other words, if you had decided, as the United States government, that you were going to support Palestinians, and at the same time you decided to defund UNRWA, what you would probably do would be to reprogram those funds and give them to the Palestinian Authority. Uh, in other words, the, the people who are not being served by the Palestinian Authority are being served by UNRWA. People in UNRWA get, uh, they get UNRWA, I'm sorry, the refugees get UNRWA medical care, they get UNRWA education. Uh, the Palestinian Authority does not provide those things they they refuse to, the to enter into the camps right like if we if we can if we go back to east jerusalem as an example of where you moved in 2005 with your offices at least and yeah. we were to consider that there would be a unra camp let's maybe say uh, shufat has three elementary schools 1500 students has a primary health care clinic there it doesn't receive services from the Palestinian Authority. It's in East Jerusalem. It doesn't receive services from the Jerusalem municipality because they're existing in a Palestinian in a Palestine refugee camp. But if you get to a situation where you have to, to deprogram UNRWA in East Jerusalem, there are other actors who could come in. You could have a USAID bilateral assistance program. You could go to the UN Development Program, the PAPP, the Program for the Assistance to the Palestinian uh, uh, People. Um, you could have the, the Jerusalem municipality come in and provide school and, and health care services. And if you want to extend that into the West Bank, like you said, the PA could pick up the slack. They probably wouldn't because of political reasons. But even if they didn't, there's still examples of hundreds of private institutions ran by Palestinians for Palestinians, whether it be in health care, in education. I mean, 4,000 kindergartens exist in the West Bank. Something like um, over a dozen hospitals exist in a private capacity. A thousand pharmacies exist in a private capacity. So if anything, it's as if though there's a need for the refugee aid to transition to either development or, or, or humanitarian aid to Palestinians in need, not to pick up this refugee definition. Do, do you think that that's a likely outcome of the U.S. cuts? It's difficult to tell. What has happened uh, has been that the Americans have undoubtedly, and we don't know the publicly, we don't know the details of what the Americans and the Palestinians and UNRWA have been discussing. But it appears that during the first year of the Trump administration, there was a back and forth 
with the Trump administration trying to insist upon some reform of UNRWA to eliminate some of the difficulties which many people have identified and which you have alluded to, in fact. Uh, that appears not to have been successful. Uh, it appears that in January of this year, the Trump administration cut half of the scheduled payments to the normal budget of UNRWA. Uh, that was supposed to be $125 million, then he withheld $65 million. So the Trump administration apparently became irritated with the, palace, with the UNRWA on being unwilling to introduce the sort of reforms that the administration felt was necessary. Uh, they, in the latter part of January, they withheld another $45 million uh, that had been scheduled to be paid for emergency operations. Again, showing, trying to demonstrate to UNRWA that there would be consequences for the failure to reform, which had been urged upon them for the last 12 months. Uh, and it looks like those consequences have come, and now we have a situation where the U.S. is not giving any money over, but... I think that uh, if we look at this issue in the months ahead and we can have you back on the program, maybe we'll have a little bit more of a story to uh, dissect and, and to analyze. Uh, Mr. James yes. Lindsay, thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you very Have a much. great day. You too. Next, E.J. Kimball. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff. But still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East in the Morning. I'm Greg Roman, your host here on WWDB 860 AM. Today is Wednesday, September 19th. Joining us is E.J. Kimball, the director of the Middle East Forum's Israel Victory Project. Previously featured on the show, E.J. is a foreign policy and national security consultant with over 10 years' experience working in Washington, D.C., having recently served as executive director of the Israel Allies Foundation and currently serving, as I said beforehand, director of the Middle East Forum's D.C. operations and its Israel Victory Project. E.J., welcome back to the show. 
Thanks, Greg. Good to be on. How are you? Doing all right. Uh, we are pre-recording this program. As you know, uh, uh, Wednesday the 19th is the uh, Yom Kippur, the, the Jewish Day of Atonement, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. So uh, you and I will be sitting, uh, uh, if, we're, if we're behaving well, in synagogue tomorrow, uh, 12 hours into the fast when our listeners are hearing this. And, uh, and hopefully we won't be too hungry. Hopefully not. No. So, EJ, it's been an exciting summer in terms of what's been going on in Washington, D.C., as it pertains to Israel, the Palestinians. I mean, let's look at the list of actions that the Trump administration has carried out just in the past 18 days since the announcement of that funding cut to UNRWA, the Palestine Refugee Agency. One, just a few days ago, all PLO and Palestinian Authority bank accounts have been frozen in the United States. Two, the PLO's ambassador to the uh, United States was recalled back in May by the Palestinian Authority. His family's visas were stripped last Friday, and now his wife and two children have been forced to leave Washington. Moreover, we find that all aid money going to Palestinian and Israeli coexistence programs have been cut. We find that all monies to the Palestinian Authority through direct assistance has been cut save a $45 million security package, which is meant to keep the peace between Israelis and Palestinians. It looks as if, though, close to a billion dollars that had previously been given on a per annum basis by the United States to the Palestinians is no longer in play. Can you give us a little bit of an analysis of how we got to this point and what it portends for the future? Sure. Uh, It's To really put it simply, this is about uh, President Trump taking a realistic approach to the conflict, which is to to discontinue the the examples of past presidents, which would look at the actions of the Palestinian Authority, which would undermine coexistence, would undermine the peace process. Yet we continued to give them funding and not just continued, we would increase the funding. If only we could give them more, maybe then they would uh, moderate their behavior and, and become better partners in the future. Uh, President Trump has, has injected this reality into the situation. He's you know, recognized the reality that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. He's moved our embassy there. And the response from the Palestinian Authority has been so outrageous that they refuse to even talk with the negotiators on the U.S. side, that President Trump has just said, well, if you're not going to, essentially, if you're not going to play the game, if you're not going to engage with us, why are we giving you money? We give this funding to the Palestinian Authority in order to try to bring about peace. If they have no interest in coexistence and recognition of Israel, why, why bother? And, you know, really just taking a step back here, as you know, as you know, I run the Israel Victory Project, and this idea that uh, Daniel Pipes had had uh, put forward in a commentary article last year in January, he laid out certain steps that should be taken to by the U.S. government that would enhance uh, and, and enable an Israel victory here. And many of those steps have actually been implemented by this administration. So let's let's. Get a, dig into that a little bit. I'm, I'm looking right now at an article by Richard Falk, the former UN special reporter for Palestinian human rights. Uh, such a position does exist. And, and he says here in an article in Foreign Policy Journal on September 11th, that came out on September 11th, which was a, a description 
of, uh, of Daniel Pipes' alleged role in Trump's peace plans. Uh, and I quote, What may be worse than Trump's bombastic boasts is that here there seems to be malevolent logic that underpins this mad proposal that springs from the ultra-Zionist imagination of Daniel Pipes. It was Pipes months ago, using the Middle East Forum as his ideational vehicle, issued a call for what he named a victory caucus. Pipes, an intelligent and trained scholar, reasoned that the Oslo diplomatic track had failed badly as a means for ending the conflict via negotiations. He coupled this conclusion with the historical assertion that prolonged conflicts between ethnic antagonists rarely end by compromise or accommodation. They end with victory on one side and the acceptance of defeat by the other side. Do you think there's some merit to Falk's logic? Um, do I think that there's merit to his logic? Um, no, or, or, I, I think... or the claim that he says that the Trump administration, maybe not his logic per se, but his claim that the Trump administration has been reading Daniel Pipes for the last two years. Well, I, I, I think that uh, does make a lot of sense. Look, you know, there's there's people within the administration that uh, have been known to the Middle East Forum since before President Trump came in. You know, uh, uh, Jason Greenblatt, David Friedman, Jared Kushner, uh, Victoria Pipes, you know, worked for Senator Ted Cruz. You know, these are all people who who have known of the Middle East Forum and and uh, have read the work of the Middle East Forum prior to entering office. And and this is, you know, in some ways, um, you know, it's nothing more than just logic. It's it's looking at a situation. The Oslo as um, as mentioned in the article, you know, Pipes reasoned that the Oslo diplomatic track had failed badly as a means for ending the conflict. Of course it did. What did the Palestinians give up? The Israelis gave up a lot, but the Palestinian side didn't give up anything during Oslo. They gained. They just, they just received. So they have no incentive to give. They've, they've learned a lesson, sort of, um, uh, sort of like a child who's not behaving well and you threaten to to take away their dessert and they keep behaving poorly but you give them their dessert anyways you know what lesson are you teaching them in the future when you say don't act that way and the palestinians when they keep rejecting israel and they they keep down this path the response has been from the u.s the international community from israel is maybe if we just give them some more then they're they'll change their behavior which is obviously not the way uh, the way to do this. So, it, you know, it's, it's a very simple logic in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, it's radical in the shift away from this Oslo mentality, but it's something that more and more this administration seems to be implementing. Uh, many in the D.C. policy community are understanding that if you're serious about ending the conflict, you have to start talking honestly about it and not just hopes and dreams about what the future can be like, but looking at the reality and seeing what you can make of it. So uh, m making that point, I think, a, a little bit uh, more clear, at least coming from opposition within the Zionist camp here in the United States, not just uh, professors of, of human rights like Richard Falk, but also focusing on some critiques that came from within the pro-Israel community in the United States. There's two articles that came out this week. One by Michael Koplow from the Israel Policy Forum. He's the uh, foreign policy expert there. And another from Abe Silberstein, the uh, writer who um, is, is also writing for the Israel Policy Exchange. Now, let me give you two quotes, one from Silberstein and then another from Koplow. And let me get your thoughts on, on what they, they mention here. 
In 2016, the controversial historian and writer Daniel Pipes began promoting his Israel Victory Project, which I guess you lead now, EJ. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which has since <laughs> spawned small caucuses in both Congress and the Knesset. I, I, I wouldn't call your uh, 30 plus members of Knesset, uh, excuse me, 30 plus members of, of Congress small, nor would I call the uh, 20 plus members of the Knesset, almost almost more than a quarter of the backbenchers who sit in the, in the Knesset as, as particularly a, a small uh, number. But well, that, that's fine. They want to they want to try to undermine the uh, the success. Of course, of <laughs> course. But uh, I'm just sorry that the president's not listening to their ideas, which have failed for the past 25 years. But um, but reading more into Silberstein's article, he says in their peculiar reading of Zave Jobotinsky's Iron Wall philosophy, Israel must beat the Palestinians into submission, including through settlement construction. So he has to throw in the settlements, of course, until they accept Israel's legitimacy as a Jewish state, as well as an arrangement overwhelmingly tilted in Israel's favor. The Trump administration's policies toward the Palestinians, especially last Friday's revelation that it ordered a stop to all future funding for peacemaking programs that are inclusive of Palestinians in the occupied territories, can reasonably be viewed as an attempt to implement such an Israel victory strategy. But going back to your analysis that you had just given regarding the uh, 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 victory proposition and its potential adoption by Trump administration appointees. It's not like the Oslo process was really getting any successful results. Look at the numbers. Over a thousand Israelis massacred by Palestinian terrorism since 1989. Arguably the, the time after George Schultz came out with his uh, uh, letter trying to recognize the PLO as a uh, legitimate representative of the Palestinians that uh, uh, the, the Oslo peace process began. Over 5,000 Palestinians dead, most because of their actions taken against Israelis, others because they were put in the way as civilian shields by Palestinian terrorists. If we look at the process that's going on with Palestinian autonomy, whether it be in the Judea and Samaria or the West Bank, uh, which is to uh, Israel's east, or in Gaza, you have a genocidal, homicidal, kleptocratic, Islamist-ran smattering of a semblance of governance in Gaza and an even worse situation in terms of the corruption in the West Bank, where the only reason why it's a little bit more peaceful is because the Palestinian Authority leadership profits off of their peacemaking folly. Now, we get to a second article here written by Kapla, where he says in the last paragraph in an article titled, The Spoils of Victory Over the Palestinians, the U.S. has no obligation to dole out aid to Palestinians or anyone else. If Trump's longest held principle is that the U.S. is being held and taken advantage by foreigners who prey upon our generosity and he wants to end this cycle, he is well within his rights to do so and elections have consequences. But part of the myth of America and its democratic exceptionalism is that we are supposed to make the world a better place and do good for its own sake and not because we will get something in return. I don't understand how granting the Palestinians billions of dollars to further violence against Israelis, and even, as we saw in the example on Sunday, of Ari Folt, an American Israeli slaughtered by a Palestinian outside of a supermarket in a, in a neighborhood of Jerusalem, how the American granting all this money has uh, been an example of our democratic exceptionalism. Could you address that point? Well, it He's correct in what he writes, but his analysis is wrong. He doesn't understand. Yet, yes, we are supposed to make the world a better place and do good for its own sake. But my response to him is the money that we're giving, how is that making the world a better place? It's not making the world a better place. That's what President Trump is 
uh, is doing with our foreign aid that he's, he's withholding from many places around the world is saying, is this making the world a better place? Is this making America safer? Because it's actually, uh, let, me, let me step back. He's actually incorrect here. The goal is not to make the world a better place. It is to make the world a better place in the interest of U.S. national security. And what's been happening with the Palestinian side is all the funding that's going there is not in the interest of one bringing peace, which is ultimately in the national security interests of the United States and our people. So, you know, his 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 heart is in the right place. But, you know, he's he's going through this challenge that many people are, which is adjusting to reality. You know, again, instead of hoping this myth, he says part of the myth of America, you know, the reality of America is we do a lot of good all around the world and we seek to make the world a better place everywhere that we go. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And if it's not working, you have to figure out why it's not working and try different ways. Right now, we are trying a different way in the Middle East with the Israeli and Palestinian issue. And I think it's actually working. So he invites you, uh, maybe he wrote this article knowing you were going to be on the show today, to address this issue head on. The, The last sentence of that last paragraph says, if anyone has a cogent argument in support of denying Palestinians medical treatment in hospitals on Israeli territory under Israeli administration that they cannot get anywhere else, either on moral grounds that they deserve to die for the sins of their leaders and fellow countrymen, or on practical grounds that this will cause the entirety of Palestinian society to accept Israel's right to exist, then I would love to hear it. But if not, let us dispense with this mendacious fiction that this heartlessly inhumane action is about victory and peace and is instead nothing more than cruelty for cruelty's sake. How do you address that? Look, if you want to just continue doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different result, go right ahead. You know, people like that, I I try to avoid. Um, You know, I look at this situation and, and, and look back over the last 25 years and say, look, there was an attempt made. I think it was a flawed attempt from the beginning, but an attempt was made to bring to bring peace to the region, and it failed over and over and over again. And when it failed and was clear that it failed, people kept trying, and they kept trying and trying, and it continued to fail until finally uh, enough people woke up to that reality that it's not going to happen. There are still some people who just want a peace process. They would rather a peace process with Israelis and Palestinians sitting at a table negotiating ad nauseum over final status issues that won't go anywhere because the crux of the matter is the Palestinian society and its leadership still rejects the existence of the Jewish state of Israel. That is why there is a war being waged for over 70 years over the right of that Jewish state to exist. Until that ends, you can keep funding everything you want. It's not going to change the mindset of the Palestinian people and their leadership. There needs to be a new approach. There needs to be one that focuses on convincing Palestinian society that if they give up their war goals of destroying Israel and accept Israel's right to exist, there is a much brighter future for them. And there is an opportunity to so, be part of a world community. Sometimes you have to realize what it looks like in the dark to appreciate the light. I mean, if, if, if you look at the current state of affairs, just like you were alluding to, 25 years after the Oslo process, the promise of peace has congealed into a reality of never-ending war. 
I mean, think about it. The framework that Palestinians and Israelis exist in today is not the only option, just as you raised. If we get a little bit more specific and, and we do a deeper dive, in the West Bank, there's divided government that ignores its population's needs and refuses to submit to elections. We have a president of the Palestinian Authority serving the 13th year of a four-year term right now. In Gaza, like we said beforehand, there's a Hamas leadership that jails its own members for questioning its corrupt practices and even refuses to cooperate in any way with Israel, which in that translation meets out physical and mental health degradation to its population, which continues to plummet. And not to lay its own share of responsibility for continuing this process, but certain elements within Israel itself are very happy with an extremely stable conflict mecha management mechanism and approach that consequently continues to manage something without any goal of ending it. And I think that the project that you're running in Washington, D.C., and the ideas that Daniel Pipes came up with, not just two years ago, he's been talking about this for the last 19 years, since I think a speech he gave in uh, Detroit back in 1999, but perhaps a presidential administration has come along in the form of Donald Trump and his peacemaking team, and they're taking a new approach that the Palestinians, for once, do not have an answer on how to deal with. Any last thoughts? Um, my last thoughts are, are, for those that are concerned that this path may lead to war, I would say, number one, that's what's been going on for the last 70 years. And number two, there are distinct changes happening on the ground and injecting reality into a situation to dispel the myths that have been existing for so long that cement these bad ideas, this reality injection is necessary to break the mold to then rebuild uh, a process that will actually lead to a future of peace and coexistence rather than a piece of paper that won't be worth the uh, uh, the weight that it's, uh, you know, that it's uh, signed with, you know, it's, this is an opportunity now that we have, and that thankfully, this administration seems to be pursuing to a degree that may shake things up in the region to finally break through with with an opportunity to, uh, to bring peace in in our lifetime or, or our children's. And I think that we can all uh, hope for that and, and, and atone for that. EJ Kimball, director yes. of the Israel Victory Project. After these messages, my final thoughts. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century. Communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watch.org or check us out on Twitter at IslamistWatch. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. 
We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum in the Morning. I'm Greg Roman. You're on WWDB 860 AM. What a fascinating interview that we had with E.J. Kimball regarding the Israel Victory Project and a little bit of less reticence that we got from James Lindsay and a clarification on what it means to be a Palestine refugee. Ending today's broadcast, I thought that I would share some thoughts regarding the subjects that E.J. brought up on the proposition of an Israeli victory over Palestinians. And what that basically translates to is not a hardened defeat of the Palestinian people, but a defeat of their ideology which demands that Israelis, in one way or another, are pushed into the sea instead of being able to leave a coexistence and, and, and a peaceful coexistence with their Palestinian neighbors. Starting in March of this year, the Great March of Return to Jerusalem started. A, a human wave launched by the Hamas terror organization against the Israeli-Gaza border every Friday after the end of prayers at local mosques throughout Gaza. Israel offered countless amounts of assistance to the Gazan population, but time after time was rejected by Hamas, which allowed its people to suffer while refusing Israel's help. What was the answer to Hamas's rejectionism? At first, it was just being able to use nonviolent means against these masses of tens of thousands of protesters that were coming across the Palestinian-Israeli divide there on the Gaza border. But as the escalation of violence committed by Hamas's backed organizers of this event led to the deaths of Israeli soldiers, Israel would respond as any Western liberal democracy or any country in the world protecting its border would, ensuring that there would be no infiltration of sovereign Israeli territory by these infiltrators coming across the gap between Gaza and Israel. Moreover, there was a change in the way in which the Israeli government approached the Gazan situation. In short, it was forcing acceptance. If peace would not be accepted voluntarily, it had to be coerced through force. So why, though, in this case, do we see the status quo still holding? I think it could be broken down according to three main reasons. First, the Islamic doctrines of waqf and fiqh by Hamas's leadership are primary contributors to the intransigence and all-out rejectionism of not just Hamas, but of every Palestinian faction. Waqf defines all land ever held under Muslim rule as the eternal propriety and property of Islam, and fiqh, its doctrine, demands that when such land is lost, the enemy must be expelled and the land reclaimed. If we look at examples of former Islamic conquests against areas which are now held by Christian or, or Jewish or other sovereign dominion, we see that in Spain, there's no Moroccans calling for a return to Andalus. If we look in Egypt, there's a debate on the content of religion and its diversity, not over which individual should rule there. And Israel, a project which was 2,000 years in return and having their exile be able to come back, the Jews were able to establish their sovereign right to the land in which they once lived, with the open hand of being able to accept a Palestinian neighbor. The Israelis have accepted it. It's time for the Palestinians to do so as well. But it's not just 
the Palestinians that are offering a sort of intransigence to the Jewish National Project. We also have international organizations like we talked about earlier, primarily UNRWA, that serve to perpetuate the Palestine refugee myth and narrative, validating and protecting it in the eyes of the international community. Similarly, the UN structure ensures that this trend continues by giving more than 25% of its member states a veto in the form of a Muslim voting bloc. And lastly, it's not just the Palestinians and international organizations that have to be held to account. The management and mindset of certain elements within Israel's security leadership, its government in some sectors and security services in some sectors, has resulted in an unwillingness to make the difficult but necessary decisions to move beyond conflict management towards conflict resolution and victory. Now, if we look at Syria and Iran and Iraq and Turkey and the meddling of foreign actors like Russia and the European Union and even in some cases the United States, we have to realize that there is no short shortage of problems in the Middle East. But I think that if we find Turkey and Israel being able to work together, not Turkey under Erdogan, but a future secular Turkey going back to the greatest moments of the Ataturk regime and Israelis actually being able to have the gumption to tackle their Palestinian issues with new like-minded and potential allies of Saudi Arabia, the Gulf Arab states, of Egypt, and of other potential allies, Israel will be able to be able to stand on its own with U.S. backing and finding its new allies. But there has to be a cataclysmic shift in the way it has its strategic foresight and its thinking going forward into this new Jewish year. This is Greg Roman, director of the Middle East Forum, with Middle East Forum in the Morning, Wednesday, September 19th. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.